Chapter 16 Judgment From Court to Waystation But what of judgment? What of the assignment of guilt and punishment? That some judgment will take place is beyond dispute. The scriptures are too emphatic to deny the inevitability of some phase of our eternal journey following this one to which the name judgment is applied. The question is, what function does that judgment have? In some Christian faith traditions, the judgment is rather like a criminal proceeding, the purpose of which is the assessment of guilt or innocence, followed by the designation of the appropriate reward or punishment. The Catholic dogma holds that, immediately after death, the eternal destiny of each separated soul is decided by the just judgment of God. Following this process, souls that are perfectly pure are at once admitted into the beatific vision of the Godhead, ipsum deum unum et trinum. And those who depart in actual mortal sin, or merely with original sin, are at once consigned to eternal punishment. Calvin anticipated that on Judgment Day, God will require us to recount those evil deeds like criminals before a judge with his record and his clerk. So when God examines us that way, it is as if we see him in a visible way with his records, his witnesses, and his instructions all ready to condemn us. Some defendants God has pre-selected for salvation through grace alone. Most others will be consigned to hell, or, as Michael the Demon explains in The Good Place, the premise of our system is that a person's score during her time on earth is final and unarguable. That is not a scenario any more pleasant to contemplate than that of angelic scorekeepers who are silent notes taking of every action. As a matter of historical fact, the Reformation effected changes in our religious experience that worked to emphasize the terrors of damnation and judgment, foment guilt and alienate us from the love of God. In one of their principal innovations, reformers intended to make the communion, what we call the sacrament, the centerpiece of the regular weekly worship of the church. To their surprise, however, their designs failed. People did not want to make their communion on such a frequent basis. The explanation was not hard to find. The ancient language of the Mass had included the words that the emblems should preserve their bodies and souls to everlasting life. Ignatius, one of the earliest Christian writers, called the Eucharist the medicine of immortality. Communicants of the new rites were instead called to a new focus. Think of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Pondering the extent to the Lord's sacrifice is commendable, but it's all a question of emphasis and purpose. The fierce exhortations to self-examination made parishioners feel that they were not worthy to receive the emblems. A sombre but joy-filled celebration of Christ's gift was overwhelmed by a depressing absorption in one's own unworthiness and attendance plummeted accordingly. Fear of judgment has been exacerbated by the historically universal belief that the moment of death is the end of our pilgrimage, the end of our status as someone on the way to somewhere else. 
In such a conception, judgment as a decisive moment separating the entirety of our mortal journey from the eternity of our reward makes perfect sense. If the journey is over, the destination can only be permanent, fixed. Even the fictional demon Michael sees the problem there. But these four humans got better after they died. That's not supposed to be possible. The system by which we judge humans, the very method we use to deem them good or bad, is so fundamentally flawed and unreasonable that hundreds of millions of people have been wrongly condemned to an eternity of torture. Latter-day Saints are in Michael's camp because they begin with a different conception of mortality. True enough, this is a time to prepare, says Alma, and we are to be proved herewith, relates Abraham. But what does it mean to be proved? In the era in which Joseph wrote those words, the term proved meant to ascertain some unknown quality by an experiment, to experience, to gain certain knowledge by the operation of something on ourselves. We're not taking a test. We are undergoing a process. Eternity is long, and we are only in its warning. If progress is eternal and ongoing, then all humankind continues on a journey, homo viator, for a long time to come. This is the view of the poet Christian Wyman, who writes, All creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together, says Paul, which is exactly right. But also this, All creation, including every atom of ourselves, groaneth and travaileth toward something not towards some ideal existence from which sin has irretrievably separated us, and not towards some heaven that is simply this existence times eternity. No, faith is not faith in some state beyond change. Faith is faith in change. That is a marvellous distinctive feature of Latter-day Saint thought the implications of which we tend to forget in contemplating final judgment. When we give a final exam to students, it is not the last one they ever take. It marks the completion of a phase, one stage in ongoing education. The exam is an assessment, a point of clarification and transition between what has been learned and what remains to be learned or mastered. Some of the language of the Book of Mormon suggests that judgment in the eternal plan fulfills a comparable function. Alma's language describing judgment day is instructive. This death, of which I have spoken, which is the temporal, shall deliver up its dead, which death is the grave, and all men become incorruptible and immortal, and they are living souls, having a perfect knowledge like unto us in the flesh, save it be that our knowledge shall be perfect. What is this perfect knowledge of which he speaks? It is not a divine omniscience. Rather, it is a thoroughgoing self-awareness. Wherefore, we shall have a perfect knowledge of all our guilt and our uncleanness and our nakedness, and the righteous shall have a perfect knowledge of their enjoyment and their righteousness, being clothed with purity, yea, even with the robe of righteousness." Such a perfect knowledge of our guilt hardly sounds like the gift of a benevolent God if it is for the purpose of intensifying our suffering through the eternities. Most of us are quite capable 
of wallowing in our guilt without more provocation from the outside. But if this judgment, this self-illumination and self-understanding, is a prelude to further progress, it is a gift. Painful it may be in some cases to confront ourselves in a moral mirror, but to have a perfect knowledge of our enjoyment suggests that we will also have revealed to us the grounds for a healthier and happy appreciation of what we accomplished in a terror-strewn landscape of death and suffering traversed in all too human weakness. Marilyn Robinson may be close to the mark in this regard. In eternity, this world will be Troy, I believe, and all that has passed here will be the epic of the universe, the ballad they sing in the streets. Dame Julian learned in her vision of judgment to see her own sins, so-called, through divine eyes that are both compassionate and understanding. Here I saw verily that it was reluctance and frailty of the flesh without assent of the soul, for which God assigns no blame. If this is a truer version of what the day of judgment portends, then we can understand why Elder Uchtdorf would refer to that day as a day of mercy and love, a day when broken hearts are healed, when tears of grief are replaced with tears of gratitude, when all will be made right. And, as the prescient Julian observes, he desires that we have this confidence, that we be as secure in the hope of the bliss of heaven while we are here as we shall have the certainty when we are there. The first vision is generally heralded as the opening of the dispensation in which all things are renewed. What is the greatest lesson we can take from young Joseph's experience? Let us propose something quite simple and elemental and infinitely transformative. Joseph said he was motivated to turn to God for guidance by reading a passage in James. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. In another place and time, Enos was brought to his knees by remembering his father's words about eternal life and the joy of the saints. He was enticed by God's love, not driven by fear of God's wrath. Joseph, however, inherited a different world, as his words reveal. He did not set off immediately for the grove. He hints how his reservations were overcome in language that is highly suggestive of what had held him back. It was only after long consideration that God might not abrade him, that he decided he might venture. In the language of that day, Joseph hoped that God might not reprove with severity or reproach him, and that he might, with confidence, risk danger. Joseph's initial trepidation to seek God calls to mind a pattern that goes back centuries. Martin Luther, his biographer writes, had a crushing sense of worthlessness and fear of damnation. He felt a righteous God's fury against his sin, writes another historian. The founder of Methodism, John Wesley, and thousands of his contemporaries were driven to prayer by fear, anxiety, and guilt. Joseph found scriptural basis for a more hopeful approach to deity. And what was the greatest truth that Joseph learned from his encounter in the sacred grove? 
Perhaps it wasn't anything about God's form, the state of the world, or what church to join. Here are the Lord's own words. Joseph, my son, thy sins are forgiven thee. Go thy way, walk in my statutes and keep my commandments. Behold, I am the Lord of glory. I was crucified for the world, that all those who believe on my name may have eternal life. And Joseph's response? My soul was filled with love, and for many days I could rejoice with great joy. Joseph had rediscovered the God of absolute love, a God who waits to embrace, not to condemn. Life is hard and demanding and perilous. No one knows this more than he who experienced all our pain, all our sorrow. Joseph said the absolute precondition for a faith capable of exalting the human family is a correct knowledge of God's attributes. That spring morning, Joseph learned the most important of God's attributes. As Joseph would later teach, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, long-suffering, and full of goodness. Those who know their weakness and liability to sin would be in constant doubt of salvation if it were not for the idea which they have of the character of God. An idea of these facts does away with doubt and makes faith exceeding strong. In simpler language, the Lord himself tried to assuage the myriad doubts he knew would afflict us all. I came not to judge the world, but to heal the world. To the extent that judgment plays a role in our future lives, Eugene England captured its restoration import. Judgment will be simply our complete self-knowledge and our consequent acceptance of the best opportunities and environment for further progress that we are able and willing to accept from a perfectly loving God. An 18th century Christian, John Salvation Murray, described his conversion from a God of wrath and judgment to a God whose love was universal. I regarded my friends with increasing affection, and I conceived, if I had an opportunity of conversing with the whole world, the whole world would be convinced. Murray's wife shared his renewed outlook. When I contrast my days of ignorance with those on which the sun of righteousness hath dawned, I am wrapped in pleasure.